Hello, and welcome to the Contours podcast by New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. This is your host, Carolyn Mormon, and today we'll be discussing the recent updates for the Turkish-Kurdish conflict. Our guests were the authors of a landmark report published by both the Kurdish Peace Institute and the New Lines Institute in early May, titled The Opportunities for De-Escalation in the Turkish-Kurdish Conflict. This podcast will cover how that analysis has changed or altered since Erdogan was reelected in the Turkish elections in May and other updates on the ground. Before we begin, a little bit about our guests. Calvin Wilder is an analyst at the New Lines Institute, where he focuses on non-state actors in the Middle East and Central Asia. Prior to joining the Institute, Calvin was a research assistant at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy in the Chicago Project for Security and Threats. He was also a Boren Scholar in Amman, Jordan from 2019 to 2020, where he worked as a research and translation intern at Syria Direct. Joining Calvin is the publication's other author, Megan Modet. Megan is the Director of Research at the Kurdish Peace Institute, where her research focuses on human rights, peace and democracy, women's rights, and Turkey's cross-border military operations in Iraqi Kurdistan and northern Syria. Her extensive travels in the region supplement her regular briefings for government officials and her interviews for national media outlets, including NPR and Now This. Megan and Calvin, thank you so much for joining me. Before we jump into the effect of the election on the wider Turkish-Kurdish conflict, I want to start with the effect of the elections on Turkey domestically. Calvin, in the publication, you and Megan describe this broader Turkish question as the unresolved debate of what rights Turkey's Kurdish minority have domestically, political, social, economic rights. Do you think we're going to see any major changes to this policy of the Kurdish question in Erdogan's next five years in office? Or do we think we're just going to see a continuation of previous policy, such as crackdowns on the opposition and pro-Kurdish HDP party? Any thoughts on this? Hi, Carolyn. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. It's great to talk about this. So I think that What we're likely to see is a lot of continuity over what Erdogan's policies have been towards Kurdish political participation in the Turkish democracy since 2015 or so. I think since 2015, it's fair to say that Erdogan has been very, very wary of free and fair Kurdish participation in the Turkish democracy. There's been a lot of restrictions on the right to form parties. There's been a lot of restrictions on the rights to run candidates in Kurdish areas. And obviously also been imprisonment of leadership in the HDP as well. I think that Erdogan's been fairly clear at this point that that policy, he views it as working for him and that he's not terribly interested in reconsidering it. It's something that emerged as a wedge issue, certainly in the election itself, with Kilisharlu vowing to release certain prisoners of conscience and most importantly, HDP leader Salatin Demirtas. And I think that Erdogan obviously responded by saying that he wasn't open to doing that. So I think that it's fair to say that the expectation is a lot of continuity on that front, unfortunately. Unfortunately, for sure. So looking now at the main point of this podcast, which is the effect of the election on the Turkish-Kurdish conflict itself. Megan, in the publication in May, you and Calvin mentioned that at that time, there was a limited window for U.S. diplomacy to play a key role in negotiations between the Turkish government and the PKK. Because at that time, the PKK had announced a partial ceasefire, and also there had been the potential of a new administration in Ankara. Can we expect that In Erdogan's second term, the PKK's decision to rescind the ceasefire recently means an end to that window and will instead push Erdogan closer to choosing a unilateral military solution. 
So first of all, Carolyn, thank you so much for having me on here to do this podcast on this critical topic. As an answer to your question, I think just as my colleague Calvin said about what we'll see in terms of domestic politics representing continuity in terms of repression of Kurdish civil and political rights during Erdogan's next term, I can project that we're likely to also see continuity in terms of the policies of this new Erdogan government towards the war against the PKK and other armed Kurdish groups, both within and beyond Turkey's borders. Erdogan campaigned on this very nationalist, very exclusive vision domestically and on aggressive foreign policy internationally. And that succeeded for him, despite, as you mentioned, the unilateral partial ceasefire that had been declared by the PKK, with the hope that that would present an opportunity for both an election environment less impacted by conflict and for some kind of deal to be made if a new government came to power. Of course, that was not what happened, and the ceasefire was, as you said, rescinded after the election. I think right now on both sides, it's going to be a future for the near future, particularly with local elections coming up in less than 10 months now of more of the same. In Syria right now, and we might get to this later, we've seen Turkish escalation against the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Autonomous Administration of Northeast Syria, with a drone strike just two days ago assassinating the co-chair of Kamishlo Canton, which is one of the reasons that formed the Autonomous Administration. There have also been strikes against YPG and SDF targets and strikes that have killed and injured civilians. There's been SDF counterfire as well. A lot of fears that incidents could escalate into greater chaos, though it doesn't look at this point like any new cross-border military operation is imminently on the table. Then in Iraqi Kurdistan as well, where the PKK is based, we're seeing the kinds of clashes between the PKK and Turkish forces that have been typical of this conflict over the past several years. Though, again, we haven't seen any new named Turkish military incursion further into Iraqi Kurdistan, as they do tend to typically launch in the spring and summer months. So, unfortunately, it does look like, at least in the near future, that the opportunities for any kind of diplomatic or political engagement are going to be about preventing the worst rather than moving toward any new kind of de-escalation. Because both this winning nationalist message that has propelled Erdogan to victory and the view of many Kurdish political and military actors that five more years of this nationalist government in Turkey means that their only option is to fight back in some way is going to be the basis for a likely continued conflict. Drawing from your last words of a likely continued conflict, Are there any signs that this continuation or this resort back to PKK Turkish fighting because of the end of the ceasefire, because of Erdogan winning five more years in power? Is there any indication that this is going to get worse or do you think this is just going to stay at the same level it was before this opportunity window opened and then closed? Yeah, very important question. I would expect in the near future for things to remain at the level which they had been occurring for in terms of the kind of military activity that we're going to see and the intensity of that military activity. 
Again, as I said, it doesn't look like there's going to be any major Turkish cross-border push into Iraq or Syria soon. And that kind of new military incursion would be the kind of action that could trigger a serious escalation. That's obviously always a risk. And, you know, it's certainly I would imagine that in Washington right now, policymakers are continuing to they have before, you know, pay attention to the situation and continuing to pass on messages to all sides that restraint matters. But it doesn't look like the situation that we saw in November of last year, or certainly like the situation that we saw in the run up to uh, Operation Peace Spring in 2019, where there is an imminent new incursion on the table. Now, what we talk about when we talk about this kind of status quo military activity is still something that first has the potential to lead to escalation. Any kind of lack of restraint on either side at the small scale on some of these front lines in Syria. You know, in places that I visited, first you hear firsthand from civilians how destabilizing it is uh, to have these active front lines, you know, in areas where they live. And of course, any kind of retaliation or short-sighted military action by relatively low-level individuals on either side does carry the potential to lead to a larger response and then a larger response in that sort of cycle that could be very damaging. Then you have in northeast Syria in particular the fact that Turkey is capable of using tactics like drone strikes and campaigns of airstrikes like we saw in November of last year that while they don't rise to the level of a military incursion, can still damage civilian infrastructure, kill and injure many civilians, and make it difficult for the Autonomous Administration and the SDF to do their jobs in terms of providing governance and providing security. As I mentioned, there was a recent drone strike targeting an Autonomous Administration official. These strikes against ANES and SDF personnel are something that have continued and that are very destabilizing and have negative impacts on the ANES and SDF's ability to do everything from running local administrations to securing and continuing the fight against ISIS in regions of Syria where that remains a problem. So there are a lot of damaging impacts on regional security that this sort of status quo pattern of escalation could have. But I don't think we're going to see either side make any moves that could um, at this point, you know, lead to an expansion of the conflict. Scenarios in which I would be worried about that would be if there were a new military incursion into northeast Syria. But as of now, I think that it's likely to be more of the same. And I think that right now for Turkey, there's no pressing need to go into Syria or to launch a new larger scale operation in Iraq. And for the PKK, both the fact that their military capabilities in Turkey are limited compared to what they once were after nearly a decade now of Turkish military operations since the breakdown of peace talks, and the fact that they're aware that even limited military activity within Turkey itself could be used by Turkish leaders as justification to launch an operation against northeast Syria, which would be very damaging to the Kurdish communities there, Kurdish political movements there. That would be something that they don't want to see. So right now, I don't think that the need on either side is there for larger military escalation, but it's still a very tense situation that could deteriorate. And the status quo still feeds into a lot of serious security problems and governance problems in that region.
Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I think that I would just add on to that to say that there's no reason to think necessarily that the current status quo, particularly in northeast Syria, is stable, that with or without a new Turkish incursion into northeast Syria. One of the things we talk about in the report is that these sorts of artillery strikes and drone strikes and assassinations, that those degrade the governance capacities of the autonomous administration. They degrade the military capacities of the SDF. They basically create a situation where neither the autonomous administration or the SDF can really recruit top talent into their ranks. They depress the recruitment. They kill off leadership that are really important for decision making. They degrade the decision making capacity of both organizations. And in the long term, they could potentially lead to sort of the inability of those organizations to do their day to day functions in terms of counter ISIS activities, which the U.S. obviously relies on them for. And one thing that we've seen is that as Turkey increases pressure with or without new offensives, it increases the pressure on the autonomous administration to cut a deal with the Assad regime, which is one of the things that we're seeing right now as well. So as the pressure gets ratcheted up, they look for if the United States isn't stepping up to get Turkey to back off, they look for other military partners. And one of the partners that's available to them, obviously, is the Assad regime. And so that's something that we have, I think, seen as well in the past couple of weeks is that autonomous administration, as the pressure gets intensified in terms of these drone strikes, is now looking for a new deal potentially with the Assad regime, which would obviously be really disastrous for human rights in northeast Syria. It would obviously mean the end of the U.S. ability to operate there, so it would probably bring Operation Inherent Resolve to a rather abrupt close, and there'd be a whole host of other issues that would be associated with that. And on the issue of whether or not we expect to see a new Turkish military incursion, I would just add that one of the reasons that I think it's fair to say that we don't expect that in you know the near future, in the next month or so, is just because Turkey isn't signaling an interest in doing that at a high level diplomatically. And historically, when they launch these incursions, there's a real effort to do outreach to Washington and to Moscow in order to get some sort of green light from one side or the other to launch those invasions. And the fact that they're not doing that right now just suggests that what we're seeing is more of an effort to put unilateral pressure on the SDF rather than sort of laying the groundwork for a new invasion. Calvin, thank you so much for bringing up the pivot that Sometimes the SDF and these Kurdish groups have to look towards other parties to depend on if the U.S. isn't stepping up to hamper down Turkish pressure. And I'm wondering, this is loosely related to the report, but as we're seeing in the U.S. with petitions such as what happened this year by Representative Matt Gantz in Congress to pull U.S. special operations forces from their support role alongside the SDF in Syria, So are you seeing from your very intensive study of the SDF and all the different political and kinetic elements in Syria, are we watching the AANES and the SDF start to consider alternate methods of support as they're watching this rhetoric and this anti-U.S. participation in Syria movement start to gain ground in the United States? Yeah, it's a really important question. I think that it's fair to say that the autonomous administration for years now, I think certainly since 2019 and since the last sort of open Turkish invasion of northeast Syria, the autonomous administration has been open to the idea of negotiating with Damascus. So there's always been kind of a quiet back channel there, or I shouldn't say always, but certainly for the past few years, there's been a quiet back channel there. The challenge from the autonomous administration's perspective is that the Assad regime is just very, very averse to any kind of compromise. So the Assad regime, their idea of a deal would be the autonomous administration ceases to exist, the SDF ceases to exist, and maybe if they're lucky, the Assad regime doesn't imprison all of them and assassinate all of them, and it would only do that to some of them, which obviously isn't really a workable deal on the autonomous administration side. 
So there's been this back channel and there's been an effort to kind of cut some sort of deal. And what the SDF's position and the autonomous administration's position has been is that in order to cut a deal, there would need to be some sort of guarantees that those sorts of politically motivated imprisoning and assassinations and executions wouldn't take place. And ideally that the SDF would be folded in some capacity into the Syrian Arab army, but it would retain its current structure and some ability to sort of unilaterally make decisions on its own. And ideally to have some sort of maybe policing function in northeast Syria. And the Assad regime has basically said no to that pretty, pretty emphatically. So the absence of a deal there has basically precluded any real substantive you know, settlement between the two sides. But one of the things that we talk about in the report is that, you know, every time that a new drone strike happens and certainly every time that a new offensive happens into northeast Syria, the autonomous administration's bargaining position gets worse. They get a little bit more in need of outside patrons and they get a little bit more in need of outside support. And so that kind of forces them to make compromises that they maybe don't want to make. And that's basically what we saw in 2019 was that they weren't eager to obviously have the Assad regime come back into northeast Syria. But with the U.S. seeming like they were about to pull out entirely, they didn't really have any other options or they didn't feel that they had other options. So they allowed a deal in which members or or portions of the Syrian Arab army and portions of, of the Assad regime were allowed back into northeast Syria to man certain checkpoints along the front lines with Turkey in conjunction with Russia. So that was obviously bad news from the U.S.'s perspective. The United States doesn't want to be working in super close proximity to Russia. And it was bad news from the perspective of the autonomous administration because it gave Damascus a lot more leverage over them with having more thought aligned and regime aligned troops manning those front lines side by side with the SDF. So in terms of whether or not we think a deal is super likely in the near term, I think that unless Damascus is willing to make some sort of compromise, it's not terribly likely. But the autonomous administration is making sort of more open signals in the past couple of weeks. They've made some more open signals about being interested in that kind of deal. They've reiterated their previous position. But again, as their bargaining position gets worse, they might be forced to make a compromise that they don't want to make. Yeah. And just to build on all of those really important points, I think over the past few years, since the beginning of the Biden administration, we've seen U.S. policymakers willing to put more effort into preventing a new incursion than perhaps the previous administration made with the two incursions in 2018 and in 2019. And why we've seen at least the claims that we reported on in the report about the U.S. potentially engaging with the SDF and indirectly with the PKK to support the declaration of the ceasefire, why we've seen these changes in terms of U.S. not only security policy, but diplomacy and political engagement on the Kurdish issue is in part because the only way to have any kind of political solution in Syria that doesn't result in Assad regaining complete control of the country and return to a pre-2011 status quo is if the autonomous administration is able to strike a deal from the strongest position possible. And that's only possible if Turkey is not pursuing these policies successfully that can weaken or altogether destroy in the event of potentially a complete incursion into all of the territory that Erdogan has stated before that he wants to occupy the autonomous administration. So I think that When the U.S. is looking at what the goal of its mission in Syria is and when countries looking at the broader issue of a political solution in Syria are looking at those outcomes, the need to have some kind of ultimate negotiated status for the Northeast is becoming more and more apparent. And I think that that is forcing policymakers to realize that if they want to do that and their plan 
is to be something more substantive than either the kind of overnight withdrawal that someone like Matt Gates is looking at or the kind of creation of a permanent frozen conflict that the status quo policy that we're seeing now will be if continued indefinitely without some kind of political process. We're seeing that neither of those are sustainable options, and that the only sustainable option involves some kind of political settlement involving the Northeast, and that in order to do that, addressing the broader Turkish-Kurdish conflict is something that has to be done. And so certainly this past election in Turkey has made that more difficult. We haven't seen, as we both were discussing earlier, you know, signs that the government is about to change its policy. But I do think that given the stakes of any kind of continued deterioration of AANES and SDF capabilities or of any kind of existential threat to that region through a new Turkish military operation, we're going to see the U.S. remain invested in this issue for these reasons of what a broader solution to the Syrian conflict that doesn't allow a return to the status quo before 2011 could look like. You brought up how the U.S. is continuing to put effort into Syria because it does not want to return to that pre-2011 status quo. And the U.S. is seeing that return as more likely as this shift of more Arab states looking to begin the normalization process happening in real time. In the last conference episode, I talked with Caroline Rose and Karam Shar about how this spectrum of normalization is affecting the Captagon trade. So shifting that normalization topic to the Turkish-Kurdish conflict, I'd like to discuss with you both what we can expect out of Erdogan's second term in regards to this building of better relations with the Assad regime. So this week, which is the last week of June, we're seeing the latest round of the Stana talks, which for context for the listeners is a format for negotiations and discussions between Iran, Turkey and Syria for ending the Syrian civil war. Iran and Russia specifically have been very invested and have put a lot of pressure on Turkey and Syria to build better relations and At the same time, the Assad regime has been very, very strong about not considering any kind of negotiations with Turkey until Turkish forces and their proxies withdraw from northern Syria. Turkey has dragged its feet for a lot of reasons, and one of them being the presence of the PKK and the U.S.-allied SDF in northern Syria. So, Megan, looking at this big picture I've just laid out, Do you think that we're going to see any real movement on the Turkey-Syria relations, specifically with the removal of Turkish forces during Erdogan's next term? Or we're going to see a continuation of a lot of lip service that we've been seeing for, oh, a Turkish defense minister, Turkish political leaders meeting with the Assad regime, but nothing really coming out of this. And also, if you could give the listeners a greater idea of what would need to be happening on both ends for the Assad regime and the Turkish government for more normalization to be considered? Yeah, well, I would be extremely surprised to see a Turkish withdrawal from the Peace Spring Zone, the Euphrates Shield Zone, and the Olive Branch Zone in the next five years of Erdogan's term in office. Quite simply, the investments that Turkey has put into expanding not only their military control, but also economic and social and ideological control over those regions. The extremely domestically polarizing role of not only the Kurdish issue, but also the question of Syrian asylum seekers in Turkey. 
Turkey-Syria policy, I think we have to understand, is inextricable from its domestic policy on these issues of nationalist importance. This is something that a lot of experts have been pointing out for a very long time. And these zones in Syria, when we look at rhetoric from senior officials up to and including Erdogan himself, the purpose of these military operations was justified in part by the idea that if Turkey were to go into these areas, not only could Turkish forces remove the SDF and the autonomous administration, which they see as terrorists, but they could also bring in displaced Syrians from other parts of Syria and displaced Syrians who had fled to Turkey. Just before or during the opening days of the invasion of Afrin, Operation Olive Branch in 2018, Turkish President Erdogan actually said that the goal of the military operation was, quote, to return Afrin to its true owners, end quote. He then quoted false demographic statistics, arguing that it was a majority Arab city. Of course, Afrin's been a majority Kurdish city for a very long time, with Yazidi and Alevi minorities as well. And the goal of this rhetoric was to, you know, explain and justify this policy of essentially pushing Kurds out in order to move displaced Syrians in, something that's led to a lot of you know, significant human rights challenges and suffering both for Kurdish populations and for Syrian refugee populations during deportations or as groups like Amnesty International have reported, actually suffering deportations from Turkey to Turkish controlled areas of Syria. So because of the centrality of the Kurdish issue and the refugee issue, this hostility to Syrian refugees, to this nationalist political project, and to the worldview of the nationalist voters that propelled Erdogan to this victory, suddenly abandoning these areas would be something that would be very difficult for Erdogan to do. We have to look at how a return of regime control to all of northern Syria in this kind of deal with Turkey giving up areas that it took over and some kind of Turkish Syrian regime or joint Turkish and Syrian regime operation against the autonomous administration These kinds of territorial changes, whether done diplomatically or by force, would almost inevitably lead to another massive wave of people leaving northern Syria. Many of those people would end up in Turkey. That would go against what Turkey is trying to do with these policies in terms of trying to send these refugees back. And any kind of agreement that would see there being any kind of existential threat to the status of the autonomous administration and of Kurdish rights in Syria, as Calvin described, the proposals for any kind of agreement that the Syrian regime has been putting forward are extremely limited and, you know, would result in very negative outcomes for not only the personnel and supporters of the ANES and SDF, but for all Syrian Kurds and other communities in northern Syria that have gained increased rights and freedoms under the autonomous administration when compared to the situation prior to 2011. So in addition to seeing more displacement coming from an end to Turkish control over some of these zones and an end to the autonomous administration project in some kind of deal. You could also see increased conflict in these areas. You could see the SDF fighting back. You could see more military activity by Kurdish groups in retaliation for Turkish actions in some kind of deal that would threaten the ANES and SDF. So you would have a situation where both of the reasons for making some kind of deal 
with the Syrian regime from Turkey's perspective, those being returning Syrian refugees and countering Kurdish autonomy in northeast Syria, countering the SGF and the ANES in northeast Syria, you could actually see more displacement and more military activity related to the Kurdish conflict. So it could be very counterproductive. So I doubt that that is something that's going to happen at the scale that the Syrian regime is asking for. And I think that they are incredibly serious about wanting that territory back. They do not want to see their country divided into these Turkish controlled zones. They don't want the autonomous administration to have any form of autonomy either. I think they're very resistant to the idea of anything less than one unitary state. Turkey is very similar, you know, in its conception of what the state should be, but that's a completely different conversation. So I think we'll continue to see lip service and we'll continue to see certainly efforts by actors like Russia, like Iran, to push both sides together. But I think that the demands for both sides and the interests of both sides at this point in time are not ultimately reconcilable with Turkey continuing the same kinds of nationalist policies and with Turkey's leaders maintaining the same kind of nationalist political project based on exclusionary attitudes towards both Kurds and Syrian refugees. I think those will ultimately make the kind of normalization that the Syrian government would accept impossible in some ways. I think that that's a really great summary, and I definitely agree with it, that certainly in the near term, conversations between Turkey and the Syrian regime about normalization are not likely to lead to sort of full normalization, you might say, just because there are sort of huge unresolved issues. I think that from the perspective of Turkey, what they want out of normalization, ideally, is one of the key things that they want, at least, is the repatriation of the Syrian refugee population that's living in Turkey. So what they'd like out of that process is some sort of guarantee from the Syrian state that these people could return safely and that they would not be persecuted and that that would lay the groundwork for voluntary, more likely some level of coerced patriation of Syrian refugees that Turkey would gradually force them out of the country and force them to return to Syria on the grounds that Syria was now safe for them to return to. And I think that the problem with that is that, one, as Megan said, that the Syrian state is just not, you know, that interested in change. It has a very narrow view of its own rights to sovereignty, that it thinks it should have sort of unilateral sovereignty over the entire country, that it should be allowed to do whatever it wants to its citizens, including sort of to prosecute them on political grounds. So the Syrian state is probably not going to be willing to give the kinds of guarantees that would be necessary for Turkey to begin that repatriation process. And the other thing is that part of it is just beyond the Syrian state's control, that the reasons that Syrian refugees in Turkey don't want to go back to Assad-held territory are partly because they're afraid of persecution, But it's also because the economy is so bad that they wouldn't be able to make a living, that they would be at real danger of going hungry, of becoming malnourished, let alone being able to find sort of steady employment. And that the Assad regime can't sort of guarantee an improvement to the economic situations in Assad-held territory through negotiations with Ankara. So I think that issue is unlikely to be resolved. And as a result, I think Ankara is going to be frustrated by its efforts to normalize. That's going to basically lead to, you know, if the Assad regime isn't able to guarantee the one thing that Turkey is most interested in getting out of this, then Turkey is probably not going to be willing to compromise either. That's likely to lead to some some more gridlock on this front. I think that it's pretty clear that you're going to see more, you know, symbolic normalization steps that you might see normalization of diplomatic ties on some level that you might see more regular phone calls between Erdogan and Assad that you might see some limited trade deal. You'll sort of, I think, continue to see headlines that kind of sound like progress is being made on normalization. 
whether or not that means that you're actually likely to see, you know, a complete restoration of ties back to the level that you had before the war broke out. I don't know that we're necessarily on a very clear roadmap towards that for those reasons and obviously the ones that Megan outlined as well. So as a closing question for you both to put the report that you both wrote and this whole topic in perspective, I'd love to hear how you think the recommendations that you put forward in this report need to change or will be forced to change now that Erdogan is in power and starting a second term as opposed to his opponent who could have come into power. Is there anything that that the U.S. should be doing to help create another window of opportunity for negotiations and for change in the status quo that is, as you both have said, returning its full-fledged force in this conflict? Well, I'd say that to talk about what necessarily needs to change, I think all of these recommendations, while there are certainly moments in time and individuals who might be more willing or less willing to negotiate, at the end of the day, the Kurdish question in Turkey is not something that exists between Kurds and one leader or one political party. It's something that exists between Kurds in Turkey and the state. And now we know that for five more years, it's going to be Erdogan and his AKP government that are going to be in charge of that state. And they are going to likely continue to pursue the kinds of nationalist policies that they have already been pursuing. But all of that does not mean that there is no opportunity for diplomacy and pro-peace policy. And it certainly does not mean that diplomacy and pro-peace policy are less important. I think the threat of the current status quo continuing to slowly degrade or escalating into the kind of large scale conflict that we warned about in the report with the new military incursion or something like this is simply serious enough. And the impact of this conflict on everything from the continuing efforts to ensure the defeat of ISIS to the status of Syria and whether there will be any kind of political solution and long term change in Syria to even issues far beyond Kurdish regions or Turkey or the Middle East, like NATO expansion, for example, where Turkey is currently using that process in order to try to get European democracies to alter their laws to treat Kurdish and Turkish dissident political activity the same way that Turkey treats Kurdish and Turkish dissident political activity. You know, we're seeing this issue, this conflict, come up again and again at the center of security developments that matter for millions of people and many different regional and international actors. So addressing it is going to be important. And I think it's also notable that for everything that Erdogan's government has done over these past eight years since 2015, Erdogan's government was also the only Turkish government to ever seriously sit down at the negotiating table and try to come to a solution. Obviously, there are very different incentives now, but the point is that this problem will continue to exist. Its negative impacts will continue to exist and will pose threats not only to people in the region, but to the interests of many different international actors, including the U.S. And the potential to walk back from the brink of chaos and pursue pro-peace policy is always there. So I would say the recommendations about things like Assessing U.S. policies to look at those that have hindered negotiations, those recommendations are things that can stay. The U.S. should look at how arms sales to Turkey 
may, instead of guaranteeing security, actually incentivize Turkey to use those arms in destabilizing ways. With things like the F-16 sale going through now, that's certainly something that we're seeing members of Congress thinking about, with many of them pointing out that these jets are used against civilians and, you know, forces that fought ISIS in Syria. We can see the U.S. continue to look at other policies related to the conflict that may have made peace and negotiation more difficult. We can look at things like reassessing whether the framework of terror designations is the best way to address the PKK and the Kurdish movement, or if that framework actually makes it more difficult for actors, you know, states and international organizations to get both sides to the table and actually end the conflict. That's something that, you know, we can still see as important. And I think the U.S. putting pressure on Turkey to abide by its international legal commitments Even if Erdogan looks like he has no intention of doing that now, Turkey has been responsive to U.S. pressure in the past. Erdogan cares what the U.S. thinks of him. He's still upset that Joe Biden hasn't met with him at the White House. You know, that kind of meeting would mean something to him. For all the anti-U.S. rhetoric that you see in Turkey, there still is, they attach a lot of importance to what the U.S. does and says. So U.S. pressure to do things like put into implementation European Court of Human Rights rulings on uh, imprisoned HDP officials to do things like allowing Abdullah Öcalan, the founder and leader of the PKK, who's in prison, to communicate with the outside world. That, for example, is something that's very, very important to the Kurdish movement. And if he was allowed to make statements, would be both something that the Kurdish side would see as, you know, important to them that could lead to reciprocal action from their side. And also, we have to look at the fact that four years ago, when Ocalan was last allowed to meet with his lawyers and he made his last statements, he was talking about things like the importance of Turkey and the SDF resolving their differences in Syria peacefully. That's extremely helpful to have a political leader of that stature for one side of the conflict saying things like that. So those kinds of, you know, enforcement of uh, basic international laws on those kinds of issues, particularly relevant to individuals and actors involved in the conflict and in efforts to resolve it could be important. And of course, maintaining U.S. pressure against any kind of Turkish invasion of northern Syria. Any new military incursion would be the catalyst to what we described in the report and what we've talked about here is essentially the most destabilizing outcome You could see that spilling into conflict, not only in Syria, but in Turkey and in Iraqi Kurdistan as well. It would mean the end of the de-ISIS mission and the U.S. role in Syria. It would lead to a lot of displacement. You would have refugees not only going to other Middle Eastern states, places like Iraqi Kurdistan, but also likely trying to reach Europe. So there would be a lot of destabilizing impacts if that happened. And this administration has successfully kept Turkey from launching another incursion including at moments like in November of last year, other moments throughout last year as well, where based on communications from senior Turkish officials to the public and, you know, in their rhetoric toward Washington and Moscow, as Calvin mentioned, they seemed very serious about doing something like that. So maintaining that pressure will be important. And using the channels and other resources that it has to continue to urge the Kurdish movement to de-escalate and to be able to, when they make those requests, be able to learn from the experience of the partial ceasefire of this year, how it came together and how it was rescinded to be able to make these requests hold on longer. You know, whether that means using the same channels to push for a return to those conditions and at the same time pushing Turkey 
to take steps to reciprocate so that uh, both sides can, you know, come to some kind of, even if it's not an agreement negotiated between the two of them, some kind of agreement where both sides have promised the U.S. that they will refrain from offensive action, something like this. So there are a lot of opportunities. The U.S. is the only country with the connections on both sides to be able to engage in this. It's the only country with the interests in it. And ultimately, if we want to end these, what some people will call endless wars in the Middle East and prevent the next endless war from starting, diplomacy is the only way, political engagement is the only way, and resolving this conflict, pursuing policies that promote peace, changing U.S. policies that have promoted conflict in the past, that could be a path to meaningful regional stability in the long term, even if it's a difficult path now. So that's what I would say. Yeah, I think that that's a great answer, and I'm not sure how much I have to add to that. I think that, you know, what we talk about in the report sort of generally on the U.S. side is this idea of basically consolidating a pro-peace policy, which is basically how do you create policies that incentivize both sides to come to the negotiating table? I think it's worth emphasizing that the United States really can't solve this problem on its own, which is part of what makes it so challenging. It's more about what can the United States do around the margins to incentivize both sides to seek de-escalation rather than escalation. And on the side of the PKK and other armed Kurdish groups, I think the U.S. has actually had a pretty good and pretty effective policy over the past year or so, which is really pressuring armed Kurdish groups to pursue de-escalation, to observe ceasefires, to refrain from any attacks directly into Turkey. It hasn't been 100 percent effective, but you have seen real restraint on the PKK and certainly on the SDF side in terms of limiting the amount of cross-border attacks that they do. And I think that that's partly because the U.S. has been very, very clear about their expectations to the SDF for a continued partnership on the military front, and the SDF takes that really seriously. And on the Turkish side, I think that you can kind of divide it maybe into two separate questions, which is what can the United States do to sort of put its finger on the scales in terms of Turkey's domestic political approach towards Kurdish political opposition? And then there's a separate question of what the United States can do to shape sort of Turkey's foreign policy towards armed Kurdish groups in Iraq and Syria. And so domestically, I think that the United States has understandably been very, very reluctant to weigh in on Turkish domestic political practices. But I think that there's a lot more that the United States could do. You know, Megan talked about Abdullah Ocalan and giving Ocalan more ability to meet with his lawyers, giving him more ability to make statements that the past statements that he's made have actually been kind of helpful and that it would be good for the United States to maybe pressure Turkey behind the scenes quietly to see more of that. Obviously, Ocalan is not the only person that is currently imprisoned in Turkey. There's a much wider range of people, certainly on the HDP side, that the United States could be calling attention to and pressuring Turkey to allow them to make statements. And ideally, in cases where their causes of arrest are kind of baseless, uh, pressuring Turkey to release them entirely. And then on Iraq and Syria, that it's just really important for the United States to reiterate its position on no new military offensives, that they would be enormously destabilizing. And that um, these sorts of airstrikes and drone strikes and artillery shelling that we're seeing now are also destabilizing and that Turkey is receptive to U.S. pressure, that when they perceive that the United States is disengaged, that we see more of this type of escalation. So it's really important for the United States, I think, to be proactive in its diplomatic pressure, calling attention to these sorts of strikes, particularly when strikes hit civilians. There's obviously no excuse for that when Turkey is deliberately targeting civilian leadership in northeast Syria. And so I think that there's a lot the United States could do to be proactive about calling attention to those strikes calling Turkish counterparts, letting them know that they're watching and letting them know that they're upset by that. I think that that actually does play a role. It obviously doesn't solve these problems unilaterally. And ultimately, Turkey has agency over who they decide to target and not target. But U.S. presser does sort of put its finger on the scales and make Turkey think twice about certain destabilizing actions. So 
I would say that on the foreign policy side, that's what the United States can do. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I really appreciated this last answer from both of you. We've spent the whole podcast talking about how limited a lot of actors are and their ability to make long-lasting difference in this PKK-Turkey-SDF-Turkey relationship and all of the problems that are coming out of it. But in this last answer, you both have really indicated the steps that the U.S. and the international community can complete to, as Calvin said, make changes around the margins and help make small but worthwhile changes in this conflict, such as speaking out when civilians are killed in airstrikes and encouraging Turkey to fulfill its international law obligations to protect and care for refugees, things like this that can make a difference, though small, in a very, very messy and very rough situation for not only Syria and Turkey, but the region. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Contours. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new podcasts. Check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org.